In this study of the Word of God, we are going to touch on a very delicate yet very important subject, and that is restoring a brother or sister who has sinned or is in sin. I want to apologize in advance for anything in my personality or in my delivery that may detract from what God has said on this important subject. As you read through the Bible, you can't help but notice the emphasis that God places on personal holiness and righteousness and godliness and Christ-like character. God desires and demands holiness in the lives of his people. And as long as God gives me breath, I will proclaim that message. But it doesn't stop there. God wants that message reinforced with action. In the Old Testament or Hebrew Scripture, God established certain laws for his people so there would be absolute standards. Whenever those standards were violated by someone, that individual was held accountable. But we aren't under the law today. Romans 6.14 clearly says we are not under law, but under grace. Yet there is still accountability. As members of the body of Christ, we don't live just any way we please. We are accountable to our head, Jesus Christ, and we are accountable to each other as members of the same body. Jesus instituted this accountability in Matthew chapter 18. So turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 18 and follow along as I read verses 15 through 20. Jesus said, Moreover, if your brother sins... Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Unfortunately, this is a passage of Scripture that is virtually ignored today in the church at large. I think there are at least two reasons why this passage is ignored. One is because this passage has almost been destroyed by well-meaning people who quote its verses out of context. For instance, look at verse 20, where we read, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. How many here have heard that verse used in reference to prayer meeting, Bible study, marriage, or some type of small group gathering. It has nothing to do with any of those things. Beloved, you don't need two or three people with you for the Lord to be with you. If you are a Christian, then the Lord is with you all the time, even if you're by yourself. And then there's a second reason why this passage is virtually ignored, and that is because it is, frankly, extremely difficult to carry out. Look at verse 15. Moreover, if your brother sins, go and tell him 
his fault between you and him alone. No one in his right mind enjoys going to a brother who has sinned or is in sin. Only a person with a headhunter mentality would enjoy doing that. But, beloved, even if it's hard to implement this passage, even if it's hard to follow it or do it, we have to do it because Jesus said so. In Luke 6.46, Jesus said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you do not do what I say? That's a valid question. Why do you call me Lord, and yet you don't do what I say? We have no right to call Jesus Lord if we're not willing to obey his words here in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. You see, it's very easy to say that sin is an affront to the holy character of God, but it's very difficult to back that up with action. But listen closely. Whenever we're not willing to reinforce our teaching with actions, then we give the impression that the Bible is unrelated to life. The impression we give is this. Well, it's a nice book to teach from and, and even stick up for when it's attacked, but we don't really have to follow it. We don't really have to obey it. That's the impression we give when we're not willing to reinforce our teaching with actions. So we must be willing at all costs not only to teach the Word of God, but to obey it as well, to do what it says. I think it's important for us to get a running start at our text. Back in Matthew chapter 16, a couple chapters earlier, in verse 18, Jesus told his disciples that in the near future, he was going to build something called church. Ecclesia is the Greek word Jesus used, and it means assembly or congregation. This was something totally new to the disciples. They thought Jesus was going to set up his kingdom, his basileia, two different Greek words. They had no idea what church or ecclesia was because the church was a new concept. It was not in the Old Testament. That is why in Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, I shall build my church. Future tense. I will build my church. The only other time in the Gospel of Matthew that the word church is used is in our text in Matthew 18. So if you put the two passages together, basically what you have is this. Jesus is saying, I will build my church. And when this new thing called church is established, here is how I want you to deal with sin. So Matthew 18 is a very important passage. It is the first time anywhere in the Bible that church discipline, which should be viewed as and described as an opportunity for restoration, it's the first time that process is discussed. Now, whenever the Bible addresses a passage or a subject for the first time, theologians call that passage a passage of primary reference. For instance, if you want to see what the Bible has to say about marriage— You don't start in Ephesians 5 or Colossians 3, even though those passages are about marriage. The starting point is Genesis 1 and 2, because that is the first passage where God addresses the subject of marriage. So if you want to study how God wants sin dealt with in his church, 
The starting point is Matthew chapter 18. It is unfathomable that Jesus would ignore something so, as, so important as this. There's something else that should be emphasized as we approach this text in Matthew 18. It is crucial that we connect this passage to the context so that there is a stress on the importance of humility when you go to another believer. All too often we separate these instructions from that context and it makes them harsh, abrasive, etc. In fact, I don't even like it that we, and I include myself in this statement, I don't like it that we often refer to these verses as instruction on church discipline. Now, I understand that, I understand that discipline is a necessity, but I don't want to color the tone of the passage by jumping to that immediately in our minds. The emphasis of Matthew chapter 18 leading up to these verses is childlike faith and humility. So we need to bring that same tone into this text instead of an atmosphere of harshness, pride, or anything along those lines. Let me make one other observation about the text before we study it together. It is is obvious from reading verses 15 through 17 that Jesus feels very strongly about us following his instructions. Why do I say that? Because in three verses, verses 15, 16, and 17, in three verses, our Lord uses five imperatives, five commands to stress the importance of the matter. These things are not optional. These are commands. They are to be obeyed if we call Jesus Lord. Now let's look at what he says. Verse 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you. Stop right there for just a moment. The word trespass in the King James Version translation, if you happen to have that, is the exact same Greek word used in Romans 3.23 translated sin. I point that out so that we will understand that Jesus is not merely talking about some personal difference between two Christians who are not getting along, although this passage certainly would, would apply to those kinds of situations where you go to your brother to try to work it out. But the primary issue that Jesus is addressing here is if your brother sins. The phrase against you in the King James Version and the New King James Version is not in the New American Standard Bible. It is in the NIV with a footnote that says some of the Greek manuscripts don't have this phrase in them. The reason why I mention this is because it's extremely important that you don't limit this verse as a reference to some personal grievance between you and someone else. Again, I say that this verse would apply to that, but Jesus is primarily talking about a brother or sister who has sinned or is in sin. And understand that any sin that I commit is against you and any sin that you commit is against me. Romans 12, 5 says we are members of one another. Sin stains the church of Jesus Christ, so it is against you. Let me illustrate this. Have you ever tried to witness to someone only to have that person say, well, I know this Christian and he does such and such. I know this Christian and he, you know, he uh, stole from his company. I know this Christian and he lies all the time. I know this Christian... He abandoned his family. I know this. And immediately, 
your freedom to share God's Word is hampered because of sin in the life of another Christian or one who claims to be a Christian. You see, we are inextricably bound together. We don't live the Christian life solo. We are a team. So whenever one member sins or is in sin, it affects all of us. So what should you do? Well, look at what Jesus says. Verse 15, if your brother sins, go and tell the pastor. Do you see that? Oh, hold it. That's not in there. If your brother sins, go and tell your neighbor. No, if your brother sins, tell someone in your Bible study or in your community group. Is that what it says? No. Jesus said, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Don't spread it around. Have, a, have enough love not to gossip about it. Go and tell him. In person, if possible. Now, that's not always possible, especially in, in our era, in our day and age. Because of distance, Paul even appealed to the Corinthians by mail. He had to write a letter to appeal to them to repent. But if possible, the attempt to restore should be done personally. At this point, it's amazing the resistance that we all have to doing this. All sorts of reasons are given as excuses for not going to a brother who is in sin. Here are some of the statements I've heard through the years. I am not an outgoing person. Or, I'm just too soft-hearted to do that. Or, I'm not good at that kind of thing. Well, who is good at that kind of thing? Or here's another one. I'm not self-confident enough to do that. And here's a big one. Jesus said not to judge. By the way, that statement by Jesus is not contradictory to going to a brother who has sinned. After all, Jesus made both statements here in the same book, the Gospel of Matthew. Here's another one. I'm just too loving to go to a sinning brother. Beloved, if you're not concerned enough to go to a sinning brother or sister, then your heart isn't where the Lord's is at because he desires to see strange sheep brought back. So don't try to hide behind that excuse and call it love because it's not God's kind of love. God's love desires to see strained members of the flock brought back into fellowship. Some say, well, I'm praying that they will see the truth. That isn't enough. Take the truth to them. Some say, that's none of my business. It is your business. Because as believers, we're members of the same family. It is your business. Some say, well, I have things in my own life that aren't right. Then get them right. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 7. Jesus said, get the log out of your eye so you can see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. He didn't say, make excuses about the log in your eye so you don't have to go to your brother. He said, get it out so you can see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. There's no room for compromise at this point, beloved. We have to be willing to do this. As difficult as it is, as awkward as it is, we have to be willing to do this. Verse 15 continues. If your brother sins, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. Please notice that phrase. 
You have gained your brother. That's the, that's the point. That's the desire. The goal is restoration, to gain your brother. The goal is not condemnation. This is where so many people misunderstand the process. The purpose, is, the purpose of Jesus giving us these instructions is redemptive, not punitive. We're trying to rescue people. Look with me at Galatians chapter 6. Turn to the right, past the four Gospels, Acts, Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians chapter 6. Galatians 6 verse 1 says, Brethren, if any man is overtaken or caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. The word restore here in verse 1 was used to refer to setting a broken bone. So when you go to a brother to seek to restore him, It should be done gently, skillfully, with an attitude of meekness and humility. But, but don't miss what else Paul says here in the last phrase of verse 1. Paul also says to watch yourself and be discerning lest you be pulled into sin. It's very easy when going to someone who is in sin for that person to make excuses and blame everyone else. And then it's easy if you're not discerning, you get pulled right in and say, oh, oh, yeah. Oh, I didn't realize that, that this somehow justifies your sin. So Paul says, watch yourself, be careful. Yeah, be gentle, but also consider yourself, be on guard, be discerning, lest you be pulled into sin. Titus 3.10 adds a similar caution when it says, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Now, why in the world would God say something like that? As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him? Why? What's going on? Because when you interact with a person who is not living a life pleasing to the Lord, even if you're trying to help the person, it's easy to get drawn into his sinful habits, his sinful perspective, his sinful mindset. So it has to be done gently, but Scripture repeatedly says it has to be done with great discernment, lest you get drawn in with a lack of discernment. Look at Matthew chapter 7. Go back to Matthew's Gospel, but chapter 7. Verse 3, Jesus said, Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Here, Jesus compares this process to removing something from another person's eye. Again, the emphasis is it is to be done gently or delicately. If I had something in my eye, I wouldn't want you to dig in my eye with your pocket knife to try to get it out. It has to be done gently or delicately. So if you take all of these passages and put them together, you hear Jesus saying this, when you have to go to someone, pray about it. Don't just rush in. Pray about it. Carefully think it through. Then do it skillfully, 
gently, with an attitude of meekness, and with cautious discernment so that you don't get all twisted up in the person making excuses, justifying, rationalizing. And go with an attitude to forgive. It's significant that the, fir- that the 15 verses at the end of Matthew 18, our text, the 15 verses after that deal with forgiveness. So the message is obvious. If there is repentance, then forgive. Forgive him. Forgive her. But as you go, you need to keep in mind the difference between sorrow and true biblical repentance. Peter was repentant after he denied the Lord repeatedly, and he was restored. Judas felt badly, but he never repented, and therefore he was condemned. Peter was sorry that he sinned. Judas was just sorry that he had made a mess and got caught it. Judas did not have true biblical repentance. Peter did. And this, again, is where the issue of discernment is so important. When you're trying to win a brother, you need discernment. Is there genuine repentance here? Or is there just excuse-making, rationalizing, justifying, blame-shifting? Discernment is so important. So what if there is no indication of true biblical repentance? What do you do? Well, go back to Matthew 18. We'll see what Jesus said we should do. Matthew 18, verse 16. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. So if the brother or sister who has sinned or is in sin will not listen, and sadly, you know if you've ever tried to do this, that is not at all uncommon. It would be nice if whenever we have to do this kind of thing, just to have a great response, but that's pretty rare. Usually the heart is so hard at that point that there isn't a response. So Jesus is a realist. He, he knows how it's going to happen often. That's why he gives more instruction. If he will not hear, sadly that's the case often, they won't hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. So Jesus says, if the brother or sister who is in sin will not listen, take one or two with you. Continue to attempt to restore him. Continue to attempt to appeal to him. Don't say, well, I tried. I gave him my best shot, but he wouldn't listen. He wouldn't talk to me about it. He wouldn't admit it. He he just said, you know, gave me all sorts of reasons. So I guess that's it. I'm done. No, no. Jesus said, you're not done. He said, you take one or two with you. This shows him that others are concerned about his actions, his choices, his attitudes. This shows him that what he's done affects the whole body because our lives are inextricably tied up together. But notice that it's only one or two. The principle is no more exposure than necessary. The goal, you see, is not to spread it around, but to restore him. You understand this. I understand this. I mean, listen, if I get caught up in a sin, I sure appreciate it if someone gives me the opportunity to repent in private. I appreciate that. Someone comes to me and says, Brian, you're out of line there. We all appreciate that. We don't want to have someone come to us after they've already talked to 15 people. Boy, Brian's really messed up. He's, and now you come to me and give me a chance to repent. No. Give the brother a chance to repent. Try to keep it as tight as you can. You only expand it as he or she forces you to expand it. 
So the principle is no more exposure than necessary. The goal is not to spread it around, but to win the brother, restore him. And Jesus says that these others come along, they come along as witnesses. They are witnesses of the attempt to win the brother to repentance, and they are witnesses of the, the, the reality that the brother will not repent. So that's the next step. But what if there's still no response? Verse 17. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. Now this is the step that most people misunderstand. Please hear me. Step three is redemptive, not punitive. It's redemptive. If there's still no response, then Jesus says, enlist the help of the whole body in praying for and admonishing this brother or sister who has sinned. You tell the church what has taken place so far in the restoration process, then you enlist their help. The point is, you have gone individually, you have gone again a second time, once maybe someone with you or two, now broaden the scope to include many more people because, one, there may be someone you don't know about who can get through to that person. Or secondly, the more people involved places more positive pressure on the unrepentant brother or sister. And thirdly, it gets more people now praying for the brother or sister. That's step three. Still redemptive. But what if there's still no indication of repentance? Again, Jesus is a realist. He knows how these things go. He, He gives all these instructions because he knows that so often, sadly, it just keeps going down this path. That once a brother or sister gets caught up in sin, he or she will not listen. They will rationalize, justify, excuse. Jesus had, he he had seen it. And he knew we would see it. So he says in verse 17, but here's step four. If he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Since we are not Jewish, nor do we live back in that culture, we don't immediately understand the point that Jesus was making when he said this. But let me tell you, the disciples did. To the disciples' way of thinking, these two groups were outsiders. These were people with whom you didn't have intimate relationships. These were people with whom you didn't fellowship. Jesus is not saying you should be mean to them, unkind, rude. No. But these are just people you're not really close with. So Jesus is saying if there's no repentance, then you don't fellowship with or maintain a close relationship with this brother. He has chosen to break the fellowship so you act accordingly. 1 Corinthians 5 sheds more light on this action. Turn to the right past the four Gospels again. Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And in verse 1... Paul says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality is is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. Verse 1 reads as if this was still going on. Verses 2 and 3 indicate that it was something that happened in the past. The point is this, whether or not it was still going on really wasn't the issue. Immorality had taken place Clearly, and there was no indication of repentance, so something had to be done. Verse 2, Paul says, and you're puffed up. 
You're proud. You're proud that you're allowing this to go on. You know what? The church in Corinth was way ahead of its times as far as America is concerned because this was a tolerant church. Isn't that the big thing in our day and age? They were proud of how tolerant they were. You're puffed up. You're, you're prideful that you're allowing this to go on, and you've not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who has done this deed. In the name of the Lord, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Those are strong words. Paul says this man won't respond to God. He won't respond to God's people, the church, so turn him over to Satan. Put him out of the fellowship. That's what Jesus commanded to do. Verse 6, your glorying is not good. You shouldn't be proud of the fact that you're so tolerant that you see that somehow as loving. Your, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you are truly unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. And then the question arises, well, then how do you relate to someone like this? Skip down to verse 11. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? In other words, Paul is saying, we're not talking about people outside of the church. We don't judge their actions. They don't know Christ. Sure they do what they do. Sure sinners sin. We're talking about making the right kind of judgment on people who are in the church. And so he says, verse 13, But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. Please notice that the issue here is anyone named a brother. Did you see that? Paul says, anyone who, I've written to you in verse 11, with anyone named a brother, the issue is not merely church membership. The issue is anyone who claims to be a Christian. And if someone claims to be a Christian, but he or she refuses to repent of sin, then Paul is saying the same thing Jesus said. You need to break off that relationship. Why? Why would the Lord say something like this? What does this look like? 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, 14 and 15 says this, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the teaching you receive from us. And if anyone does not obey our word in this letter, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. And yet, don't regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So Paul is saying, listen, you you can't go on with life as, as usual. You have someone who claims to be a brother, a a Christian brother or sister, and they're not living a life pleasing the Lord. You don't just go on with life as as normal. That sends the wrong message. That says it's no big deal that you claim to be a Christian and you live this way, so we'll just go on with life as usual. No. Paul says what Jesus said. You you need to withdraw. Don't don't treat them as an enemy. Don't be rude, unkind, but you're not close either. Well, it seems that the church at Corinth did this. They followed through on what Paul said, 
And look what happened in 2 Corinthians 2. Turn over to the next letter, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Verses 5 through 9 of this chapter seem to be a reference to the same brother that's mentioned there in 1 Corinthians 5. So look at what Paul says. Verse 5, But if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. This punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man. So that, on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. What is Paul saying here? He's saying this. Now that the guy has proven his repentance, let him back into the fellowship. Remember, repentance is the goal. Don't keep him out. Confirm your love to him. Show him you love him. And show him that the reason why you had to withdraw, why you had to disassociate from him, was because of his sin, and you were just wanting repentance. And then this amazing statement in verse 9. For to this end I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. Look at that. A church that refuses to address sin is a disobedient church. Did you hear that? Paul says, I wrote to see if you're going to be obedient by following my instructions in 1 Corinthians. And you did. You were obedient. A church that refuses to address Sin is a disobedient church. Now, you know why that stands out to me? Because every time we have to go through Matthew 18 and we get to step three where we tell it to the church, every time without exception, somebody gets mad and leaves the church. And I find myself thinking, isn't that interesting that they leave the church for being an obedient church? Why don't more people leave churches for being disobedient churches? This is a matter of obedience. Now back to Matthew 18. In case we're still unsure of all of this. I mean, this is, this is a big deal, right? I mean, in case we're still unsure of all of this, Jesus gives us confidence with some promises coming off of his instructions. I mean, think about it. What right do we have to do this? You know, beloved, you know how countercultural this is how much of an anomaly this is, even in churches. This just doesn't happen. So what right do we have to do this? What right do we have to tell the church about another brother's sin or another sister's sin? Can't you get sued for slander or defamation of character? What right do we have to do this? That's verses 18 through 20. Here's what right we have to do this. Verse 18. Now keep it in context. Don't strip these verses out of their context. And start making them say what they're not saying. Jesus says in verse 18, Assuredly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Bind and loose were Jewish rabbinical terms that meant forbid and permit. The Greek verb tenses here are such that it should be translated, shall already have been bound and loosed. So, Let me read verse 18 with those original concepts, all right? Keep in mind, we're answering the question. It's a legitimate question. What right do we have to tell someone 
that he is forbidden to be a part of our assembly. What right? Verse 18 says this, Truly I say unto you, Whatsoever you shall forbid on earth shall already have been forbidden in heaven. And whatever you permit shall already have been permitted in heaven. Do you see what Jesus is saying? Whenever the church declares its statement, it is simply acting in accord with what heaven has already determined. We are simply acting in concert with heaven's decision. Heaven has already decided that an unrepentant brother or sister should not be a part of the church. That's another way of saying God has already decided that. In fact, the Father promises to support us in this action. Verse 19, Again I say to you, that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. The word again in some of your translations is the Lord's way of rephrasing what he just said. This is not a blanket statement on prayer, which is how it's often used, stripped out of its context and used. No, the subject, the context is restoring a sinning brother or sister. So Jesus is saying that whenever you are losing your confidence in a situation like this, and yet the two or three are in agreement that there has been no repentance, then when the petition is made, the Father supports us and works with us because we are carrying out his will. Jesus is trying to give us courage with this statement. And if you've ever been involved in this difficult process, you know how precious this promise is. Jesus is saying that when there is prayerful counsel together, following God's guidelines, then the Father will stand with you. Now let me tell you, that means a lot when you're going through this process. Especially when you even have other Christians who are hammering you for doing this. It's very comforting to know the Father is at least with me. The Father is with us on this. That's what Jesus is saying. But not only does the Father support us in heaven when we do this, the Son supports us here on earth. And that's verse 20. For, notice this is a further explanation. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am right there in the midst of them. When we do the Lord's will in the Lord's way, then Jesus is saying, you are doing exactly what I would do if I were standing there because I am there. He is in our midst. Now, as you well know, this verse, verse 20, is taken as a promise for all sorts of things. But the promise is to those who are engaged or trying to restore wayward sheep. It's a tremendous promise. For Jesus to say, listen, where the two or three are gathered together, you're there in my name, you're doing my work, you're trying to restore a brother, I'm right there with you. Don't lose your confidence. Don't lose your courage. I'm there. Uh, You are doing exactly what I would be doing because I'm there with you. Beloved, Jesus Christ desires purity in his church. And if we love him, then our hearts will long for purity in his church also. We will be willing to obey him by following his instructions. And we will do so with humility and gentleness, making sure that we have looked at our own hearts to deal with anything we need to address in our lives. This is what Jesus has asked us to do. Now let me ask you, 
Are you willing to obey Him? This isn't easy. This isn't easy for us as leaders. When we have been working with someone and we get to the point where we realize we must take it to step three and tell it to the church, we always labor over it and agonize over it and pray through it and probably take way longer than we ought to take. But if we're going to err, we'd always rather err on that side of taking longer. It isn't easy to do, but we must be willing if we say we love and obey the Lord Jesus. We must be willing because the issue, listen to this, the issue is much bigger than just our personal comfort. It's really about the glory of God in His church. It's about the glory of God and his, in His church. And that is more important than any human opinion or human reasoning or human reaction. The glory of God in His church. Let's bow together as we close. Father, thank you for the precious promises that the Lord Jesus gives here in this text for those who are engaged in seeking to restore wayward sheep. Father, we know that this is countercultural. This instruction goes against our culture. But we know that this is in your word and this is what you have said and we must obey. And Father, we pray that we would be a church that's willing to be an obedient church. And Father, we also pray for people, either maybe some right here in this assembly or others in the community who have been burned by Christians or people who claim to be Christians and yet make decisions and live lives that are so contradictory. Father, we ask for your forgiveness because we realize how much that thwarts the gospel. When we try to present the glorious gospel only to have it thrown in our face because of brothers or sisters who live contradictory lives. And Father, we pray that if there are people here in our assembly this morning who don't know Christ but maybe have been burned in that way, that somehow you would help them to see through that, to see beyond that, and to see the Lord Jesus Christ, and to see that he is the perfect, flawless Savior who offers forgiveness who offers salvation, who offers eternal life to those who will turn to him in repentance, humility, and simple childlike faith. So, Father, even though the message this morning is not directed toward those in our midst who don't know Christ, we know that your Spirit can stir their hearts and draw them to faith in Christ. And this is our prayer and our desire as we pray in his precious and exalted name. Amen.